What's going on, guys? I'm coming in. You're listening to Please, seriously? That's how we're going to start this? We invite this. people of all backgrounds to share their stories. Through nuanced conversations. And forward thinking. And not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing. But not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fade to Gray. Uh, Today we've got, well he's returning, Brandon Robertson, uh, who is a queer writer, activist, and speaker, best known for his writing and commentary on millennials, ethics, uh, contemplative spirituality, and his work as an LGBTQ activist to evangelicals. Uh, We spoke with him just a few weeks ago. All around great uh, dude. Yeah, he was awesome, and so we thought we'd bring him back to uh, discuss uh, a little bit more about reparative therapy. But before we get into that, uh, you've had kind of a shakeup in your life recently. So um, the last time we spoke, you said that we might get you into trouble for some of the questions we asked. Uh, so I really hope that's not what Did happened. we? <laughs> well, hello, everyone. It's so good to be back with you all. Um, yeah. Uh, no, good. you all didn't get me fired. It was... Uh, yes. it's, <laughs> That's a relief. Thankfully, our church is uh, broad enough to, to handle all the crazy stuff that I might say. But um, but yeah, it's I've kind of been in the works for a while of planning a transition. Um, when I came to Mission Gathering, my church in San Diego, I'd only honestly committed behind the scenes to being around for about two years, and we're coming up on four. Um, and... Really, I've been feeling for the past year or so that my my calling isn't right now to be in parish or church ministry, but to kind of be on the more activist political side of it, using faith and theology and all of those good things to help uh, make some change in the world. And so um, I announced a week ago now to my congregation that I'm transitioning in just a few weeks to move back to D.C. and uh really engage more fully in the work of kind of faith-rooted organizing and activism from a progressive Christian perspective. So, yeah. So I'm wow, glad so to hear it wasn't us. Yeah, that, that's a relief. <laughs> that really is, is a relief. It really is. <laughs> so you're moving to D.C. to become president. That's awesome. That's it. I could, I could, you all thought it was Biden, but it was really me the whole time. Um, well, apparently Jesus voted, you know, something like that. I was going to say, I'm, yeah. I might vote for uh, Robertson. I don't know about Biden, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm ready for that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm from D.C. I've also like everyone who knows me uh, knows that D.C. is my my city. It's where I love to be. Uh, even after being in San Diego for four years, I still prefer to be in D.C. Um, and so it, wow. it's exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be going back. And to be, the way I put it is like the West Coast is just a different pace. And I grew up and I'm wired to be an East, East Coaster, like fast paced. I like to be in the midst of all of what's happening. And DC is going to be that. And thankfully with a new president. So it'll be great. Well, right on. You're actually be kind of more in my neck of the woods. We're about five-ish hours from DC um, in PA. So, um, yeah, maybe even on your way through, uh, let let us know if you're coming through 80. Anyway, let's not talk about uh, uh, geographic locations, although I don't know how. I mean, you must really be an East Coast boy if you can live in San Diego in the perfect weather and be like, no, and and kind of the more uh, maybe liberal like atmosphere and be like, no, I'm going to pack up and go back to the East Coast. So, well, they did have a heat wave this summer, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing too. San Diego is uh, 
it's the more conservative part of Southern California. And so going to DC for me is going to be, I mean, I think DC is the gayest city in America, first of all. And I think because of that, it's also one of the most liberal. Um, I was there a couple of weeks ago and you're just walking down the streets all over DC and seeing spray painting that says F Donald Trump and just, it's an amazing place. Like you, <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited. Hearing you say something's the gayest thing ever. It means has a whole different context than when I hear Chris say it, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't use gay as a negative. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, but Brandon, I really do appreciate you. You're a great guy. And when you were telling your story last time, it really is what kind of started what we're working on behind the scenes and really super excited about with a uh, reparative, uh, therapy series because um, between your story and Seth's story and the trauma that he's gone through and still working through it's just like man I don't know if enough people realize the damage this has done in people's lives and then trying to trying to just make that aware and we've talked to you a few times Seth has reached out and you gave us some, gave us some names um, some pretty excited ones that we have had some really good stories to tell so um, just really appreciate that um, more than anything so I appreciate your willingness to have the conversation because you're right. I mean, either people think that this doesn't happen anymore and so it's kind of old news or people are just unaware that it's even a thing. And uh, whether you're a Christian or not, I feel like it's important for people to know this is happening. It's happening a lot still. And uh, and the more we can raise awareness, the more I think we can pass laws and also put pressure on churches that are doing this crazy stuff. Didn't one of these Southern states just recently overturn their reparative therapy stuff and are allowing it again in their state? I want to say it's Florida, but I could be wrong. Anybody know? Sounds right. Uh, I've been out of the news for the past month or so, but, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I, the fact is that we haven't successfully in majority states been able to pass a ban on this. Um, and, I know it's been on the national priority list for like probably eight to 10 years now. The thing is, it's such a complex issue, right? Because there's a side of it that's about uh, psychology. And we all know that psychologically, uh, conversion therapy, changing someone's sexual orientation, that has been disproven. It's pseudoscience. But on the religious side, it's almost impossible in a country that values religious freedom the way we do to infringe upon a church's right to pray away the gay. And and so this is the line that people are really walking um, as we're trying to have this conversation. Well, I like that you said that it's pseudoscience, you know, because we actually, believe it or not, we talked about when we were, you know, organizing all the interviews for this series, um, you know, we actually wanted to hear from someone who actually possibly went through it and says that it worked, you know. We, uh, we haven't been able to find anyone. And I don't think that you can. I, I really don't. I don't believe it oh, works. There, there really are people that advocate that it They'll does work. They'll say it, but but I don't believe it. I don't believe that it works. It's actually been um, hard trying to find somebody who's willing to come on and defend right. their belief in, in it and it working yeah. too. So it's been exactly. And, and I think that there's a reason for that. If you aren't, you know, if this is something you really believe in, that you really believe people can change their orientation based on some sort of reparative therapy, you should be shouting that from the rooftops then if that's your religion, right? But you don't really believe it if you're if you're staying silent about it. And I think that that's because people are embarrassed about their own opinions on that uh, because it is wrong. It's It's been very deadly. It's been very horrible, right? So we talked to, to Randy, um, who was the XVP of Exodus International, and it was an incredible interview. You know, he's gone from someone who was 
behind the curtain, so to say, as someone who was harming people to now he's doing something uh, that's trying to make amends for what he did, you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, thrive. And, And, you know, we talked about cancel culture and how, you know, today he would be canceled, of course, for what he's been a part of, and he wouldn't have been able to make those amends. Now he wouldn't be able to make that transition into someone who's actually trying to help and be an ally to the LGBTQ community. Um, and so how that is also, uh, a very toxic thing and a very deadly thing, the whole cancel culture thing. So, um, this is such an interesting concept and, and people, I, wait, let's, let's, I'm curious. So what, uh, yeah. what your thoughts on the cancel culture are coming from the left, because it seems like yeah. a lot of, you know, the left is heavy on that. And, um, yeah. you know, you being in the political realms, I'm wondering like, what is your doxing and all that stuff and all that? Yeah. Cancel culture broadly is, I mean, it terrifies anyone. I think it terrifies everyone who, if you're engaged in any kind of public conversation, you have reason to be afraid. Um, and I don't think it's helpful. I think by and large, uh, the impulse is to be able to hold people accountable. And I think that's right. Especially again, if you're going to be public, uh, you need to be prepared to be held accountable publicly. And um, we've just, I think we're coming towards the end of cancel culture, Lord willing, um, because it's not sustainable when you judge people for what they did 20 years ago or five years ago. Like I say all the time, my beliefs and theology change like weekly. And if you compare what I'm saying today to what I was saying two years ago, I'm a different person and I can't be held accountable to that. And like, just to be very raw and real, like I've been on Twitter and social media since I was 12 years old. Right. Right. I'm really worried. And my generation is going to be worried about what if somebody digs something up when I was a fundamentalist 12 year old and said some crazy anti-gay thing and tries to hold me accountable for that. That's just unreasonable. Isn't that it interesting is how that plays even in kind of not to divert from the conversation, but even within the political realm, Right. With these politicians and things that they yep. may have supported five years ago, they don't support now. Um, I find that interesting as well. But I, I would just note in talking about uh, reparative therapy, it, it's not just the laws that are being passed or not being passed, but it's the the cultural norms that I think are one of the biggest obstacles that we face it's not just what's being passed legislatively, but also what is the cultural attitude? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's spot on. And I think uh, to that point as well, you all were talking about like the embarrassment around it. The thing is, yes, I agree that people are embarrassed because the broad narrative with movies like Boy Race and all of that, like publicly people now think of conversion therapy and think that, they, that it's a crazy religious thing but i also yeah but like it's important also (laughs) i have a weird soft spot for chick-fil-a but don't know yeah i mean and i mean (laughs) they've changed their stance on that that was yeah ever so slightly but uh yeah (laughs) the thing is conversion therapy has been rebranded and like this is one thing i do want to say and make a point for people to look up um the guy who found it conversion therapy or reparative therapy his name was joseph nicolosi i may have said this last time but his son now runs his organization and i have it up in front of me they rebranded it it's called reintegrative therapy if you google that sounds much more psychologically verifiable but it's the same bs pseudoscience condemned and 
I think I, I, we're seeing this around the world. I've done work in the Republic of Ireland with my friend, Senator Fintan Warfield, who's a gay politician over there. And like, when you look out over any country or state or whatever, you're not going to find people saying, hey, we do conversion therapy. You're going to find people really trying to be nuanced in their language. But when you dig beneath it, anybody who says that your identity is somehow flawed or a failure of uh, a sinful failure on God's part or your part or whatever, uh, that is always going to point to the same psychological practices and behaviors and harm that is done under the guise of conversion therapy or reparative therapy. And I just think people need to be savvy and not believe uh, the new narrative that conservatives are putting out there about this, because like you said, nobody wants to be known for this, but they're still doing it. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they've just rebranded, you know, like, it, it, of course they're doing that. Why wouldn't yeah. they? Of course, I didn't think about that until you said it. Well, again, what was that called? Reintegrated therapy? Reintegrative therapy. And it has a trademark logo next to it and a very cool looking icon. Uh, like they're doing a great job. Um, you'd never know. What Trying to make is. it sexy. Yeah. Wow. That's disgusting. Yeah. All right. So reintegrative therapy. All right. So that's good to know. And, and let me ask you this, cause I, we, we're going to get into your experience with it. Yeah. Was this something that you had a decision on? I believe last time we spoke, you, you said that you put yourself through it. Yeah. It's, I mean, these things are hard to know what influence was happening. I was living in a Bible college with strict rules. And to me, uh, they pulled me into the dean's office my senior year and basically said, in order to prove that you are with us theologically, you need to do this. Of course, That's my right. college couldn't force me to do it, but it was very heavily suggested that I go through it. So, Now, yeah. to play a little mind game here, stepping out of evangelical Christianity, is that not brainwashing? Yeah, I mean, but most seriously, the entire messed up nature of it all, because this framework gets instilled within you and it that framework drives you to this point to where there's only one solution. And when you can't meet that solution, it leads you down yeah. this path. Of, no, I think you're spot on there. There's no other option. That's what at least that's what yeah. ran through my mind. I, no, like uh, just to add to that real quick, like I always said this once I graduated Moody Bible Institute, Moody makes you sign a doctrinal statement when you enter the college in order to be admitted. And you have to sign that same statement when you leave Moody. And oh. I had that realization my senior year that the expectation is over four years, you're not supposed to grow. You're not supposed to change your mind. You're supposed to become more deeply entrenched with the same beliefs you came in. And I think that is classic. This is brainwashing. This is indoctrination, plain and simple. And I think that's a lot of evangelical Christianity. Yeah, and even with the pressure of to to belong, it was like if you're gonna be one of us, you know, you're yeah. gonna have to do this. And totally. and I don't for the people that have did not catch your story earlier, I go back and, and listen to it there because we got into some you know details of um, how you're raised and, and one of the things you mentioned um, that I just so blows my mind was you know that they believe that, like dumping the holy water on your private parts was somehow going to make your oh yeah your, that was crazy non-gay like i like i, I still I, I still to to this day like that's one of the things that like that sounds like an erotic encounter to me 
it, it just a spiritual erotic encounter. It sounds like there's zero. <laughs> it's holy. Like who is? I mean, is Jesus? Like what? What impulse? They think they're being led by the spirit at that yeah. at, at that point to do that. Like it's just that they had this. Like were you the first? Uh, time that they were doing reparative therapy, or had they had done this with other people in the past? I'm wondering, is it something they continued no. on after you left? I mean, like, yeah, if you look it up, I mean, I have the book, I was about to go grab it. It's because uh, I was just rereading it for some ungodly reason. Uh, <laughs> but the, the woman's name is Leanne Payne, um, and it's a version of conversion therapy that she started in Wheaton, Illinois. And she was this super charismatic Anglican woman who cured gay people all the time, and people would come from around the country to Wheaton to be cured by her. And you can listen to her tapes online and watch her YouTube videos. She was like, she was doing stuff. Like there was something going on there. And she integrated all this stuff that would never be accepted by evangelicals, like crucifixes and holy water and holy oil and all this weird kind of sect of witchcraft type stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They do it. And I bought into it. Like it's compelling when you're an evangelical and you're told all of that's evil. And now you're trying to get healed of your sexuality and like, and you get to play with the crucifix and hear some holy water. Like it's kind of exciting in a weird taboo way. And so it's all just this weird psychological thing that's happening, uh, drawing you in to make you think that this is possible. And that through intense prayer and a little bit of water, God's going to change your sexuality. It's insane. All right. So, so Moody Bible College tells you you're going to have to be in reparative therapy. Is that something that you do concurrently while you're in school or do you actually have to go to like a rehab center? Tell me, like, did you have to leave? Like, tell me yeah. all about that. So thankfully, I didn't go through what so, so, so many people went through. Like Randy Thomas, Exodus International, didn't have to go through those programs. Um, I would have if maybe my experience happened a year earlier, uh, different context, but Thankfully for me, uh, we had a professor on campus uh, who was an ex-lesbian who specialized in healing prayer, which was the version of conversion therapy I went through. And she was known for doing this to pretty much every gay student. Like you went and met with this woman uh, if you were gay. And so I would meet with her once a week, go to her office. And uh, I think I talked about last time, like it's just this, it's so innocuous on the surface. You go in, you talk about your sins, like, what are you struggling with? When did you lust this week? And then she begins, it's the pseudo psychology spirituality. You begin to like use psychological techniques to analyze trauma from your past that's causing you to act in the ways that you're acting today. And you ask God to go back in time. And so we would every week pray about uh, abuse events that happened in my childhood and we would visualize them. And then we'd visualize Jesus entering into the scene when I was a child being abused. And the thought process was as Jesus enters that scene, I'm healed from the trauma of that abuse, which then is gonna fast forward into my current life and heal me of my sexuality, which is tied to being abused as a kid. And so I always say it and it's disconcerting to hear but like after a year of healing prayer, I actually did find psychological healing because I was doing trauma work. But to the end that they wanted it to go, it, none of that ever came true for me. It didn't help me heal my sexuality. It reaffirmed my personhood as I processed my trauma. And I realized being gay had nothing to do with my abusive father. It was more fundamental part of who I was. And now that I was more of a whole person, I was less afraid to say that. Um, but again, my story is rare. Um, A lot of people, 
I don't know what it was for me, but a lot of people buy into it more than I did apparently. And when you get into that shame cycle, I mean, that destroys people's lives. And since we are on Facebook live, I do just want to mention this. Someone just commented the spiritual warfare and demonic activity. And I just wanted to note that often how the church responds often. So when we're not holy because we've been broken down by society and so we attribute it to these other things, which then keeps us in the cycle of shame and guilt when it's our fault rather than being able to call it what it yeah. is. No, you're right. And I think that's us. some of the more abusive stuff too. You're, right. I mean, my therapist, it was always Satan. It was always the demons are putting a foothold in your life. And it's like, if you tell me enough that my sexual attraction is satanic, like, again, the psychological harm that's doing to somebody, this part of you that you can't change, that you didn't choose, that is intrinsic, is now being labeled as demonic activity in your life. That's going to drive you to anxiety. That's going to drive you to suicide because you can't get rid of it. And you're doing all the exorcisms. I mean, the holy water, like, it's the classic image of what an exorcism would look like. And it doesn't work. And then interestingly, what does that communicate? Right? When you mm-hmm. go through all the things, the prayer groups, the church services, the volunteer activities, the worship b- band, you're saying all the right things. You're doing all the things that you've been told, yet the thing is happening from this. And therefore, the only conclusion you can take is that there's something yeah. wrong with you. Yeah. And also invalidate any faith that you had because right. like, I'm not a Christian. If obviously I can't overcome this, I must just be Mm -hmm. so far gone. Yeah. There's something wrong with me. I'm not, I don't fault. I don't fault people who want to take a fundamentalist view of Christianity. If they decide that for them, it's best to remain celibate power to you. Okay. Like, like your lesbian, uh, anti-gay, uh, <laughs> reparative therapy lady, right? Yeah. Apparently that's a decision she made for herself. Great. Why does she feel that she has the power or the, you know, authority to tell you that you can't be who you are? That's where I see it as a huge problem. And I know that Christians who are fundamentalists would say, well, the Bible says, you know, homosexuality is wrong. But I would say you don't even speak Greek or Hebrew. So how do you know that? Right. It's so interesting to me to see these people be so passionate about something that they're really not that sure about. It's all about faith. Right. Well, Chris, I mean, we've been there and that's the thing about listening to this is it makes my stomach hurt. Like try not to get too too emotional, but it really, it really does. I, I mean, I'm passionately now wanting to, you know, get the word out because I see what it's done to like people like my, my friend Seth or, or you with your story, Brandon and different people in my, in my life now that have gone through this. It's like, we need to know that like, like the actual damage it does to people, but I can't help but wonder, like Chris was saying, like the, the lady who's gone through this, it worked for her. She's believing in this and she's, she's following her passion with conviction. She, I don't, she, I mean, I want to give some grace Maybe at first that you don't know what you're doing to people, 
But over time, you know, now you can see. So like at first the wave, the trend maybe in the 90s or whenever it was when reparative therapy was at its height, like maybe there was some pseudo, like you said, pseudoscience, a little bit of proof. Hey, I'm not gay anymore, you know, for a year or two because I'm, but then it doesn't work. And then you see more harm than good. I don't know how that same person continues on with the convictions that they have that they're doing the right thing. That's And they probably the entire time are struggling themselves with that, you know? Yeah. And that's the mm. thing I think is important to note though, is it's often in these situations to get really binary and to say like, this is true and this is not true. The truth about sexuality is so much more complex than the left or the right wants to acknowledge. And it, like we know Kinsey is old news now, but sexuality is fluid. And so it is absolutely possible for some people to experience a change in sexual desire over their lifetime. That's true. But that doesn't mean that that is normative. That doesn't mean that that's something you should seek out. And so if you meet an ex-lesbian, maybe that's true for her. Maybe she did have a portion of her life that was primarily focused towards women and now she's attracted to men or is bisexual or whatever. Great. We can acknowledge that and hold space for that and say that makes sense even with our psychological knowledge. The question is whether we should be shaming and guilting people and saying that if you are oriented this way and if you are sure that you are gay, which is what happens to most people that enter into reparative therapy, they say that their story is I was living the lifestyle. Like they were certain that this is their sexual orientation they were convinced by a religious community that they were flawed and broken and that somehow they were being motivated by Satan or their sin was just so deep. And that shame is what's driving them to pursue psychological change, which again, 50 years ago, science would say sexuality is changeable. Homosexuality is a mental disorder. Get a lobotomy, do some shock therapy and we'll oh, fix you. God. So, yeah, but like, it's important to remember and this is where I have a little bit of grace for the reparative therapy folks. This change has only happened in a hundred years from me being lobotomized to me being able to be married. Um, and so they're just slow on the psychological draw, so to speak. But I mean, we know now that stuff has been done. Thousands of people were literally killed because of that and by that. And now it's time to face up to facts. It's time to acknowledge fluidity, acknowledge people's choice, but then condemn any behavior that's rooted in shaming somebody because not just in sexuality, I mean, just read any Brene Brown book, shame drives us to do terrible things uh, emotionally, physically, all of the above. So I wanna, I wanna bring up a, a few points here. Um, um, one, it's interesting because what I have always been trained to do, right, as a growing up in a conservative Christian family that very much believed in Christian morals and Christian values, um, even though we may legislatively, state to state, rule out reparative therapy practices, what I am finding is that radical Christians right? People who were what I at once considered myself to be, even though the state is making statements of where it will on this issue, 
they are still going to drive home that homosexuality is a sin. They are going to still drive home that there needs to be some time, some type of intervention. So it's interesting because the people who are considering themselves to be the most Christ-like and to be the most Christian are, are even though society is changing, that framework is not changing. And, and that has, has me very concerned. And then also, I want to talk a little bit about in, in making that determination of, hey, I want to be a part of the Christian faith. I want to take these steps. I believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in, you know, the communion of saints. I believe in all of that stuff. But if I really want to take this where I would normally, I'm a sin, an abomination, and what the hell am I going to do with that? And, and then lastly, um, someone mentioned on Facebook, um, how do you break through the shame? So in looking at that perpetual cycle, right, of, hey, I'm, I'm accepting that I am gay. I, wanna cr- I want to draw closer to God. I want to take that next step. But in taking that next step, I'm compounding myself with shame and guilt. How does one in in this day, I hate to say that in this day and age, but in 2020, how does someone who is gay seek a relationship with Jesus Christ? So believing there's, there's what been they like were four raised... questions. Which one do you want him to answer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Which one should he answer? He can, ma- he can answer all four, but let's, let's let him answer yeah. one first. Let's go, let's go with the listener question. I'm sorry. Let's go I, with I, listener I, question all, I got them all compounded, so I apologize. No, that's good. Good. They're, all good. They're all great questions, so let's just go one at a time. Let's go with the listener question, uh, with the shame. How do, yeah, you the break, shame. how do you break free or break through the shame? Isn't it ironic that, I mean, all of us who had conservative Christian backgrounds, like half of our worship songs are about how God takes away our shame, how Jesus took away our shame. Like, and I actually think that's pretty damn good theology, like that if Christianity is going to be useful in your life, it's going to be useful because of the message that says your flaws and your failures don't define you. Shame should not be the function, the way you function in the world. Um, God's love for you is consistent. And I, I think the problem when we're talking about LGBT people and Christianity isn't, and I probably said this before, the six verses in the Bible, it's the entire paradigm of evangelicalism that has been corrupted by an image of God that looks nothing like the God revealed in Jesus. If our image of God is a divine judge, if our image of God is primarily one who is calling us to a standard of holiness that he knows we can never reach and still holding us accountable for that, that's a that's a terrifying, terrible God. Like that's not one that I want to believe in. And it's not one that I think Jesus embodied. Instead, we need to take a hard look at who Jesus was and what he taught. If you're trying to relate to God in the way of Jesus, you're going to see the savior who, yes, was willing to call out sin, but the sins he called out were injustices and systemic sins. Very rarely is Jesus talking about these individual sins except for how they relate to broader injustices. So rich people can't enter heaven because they're participating in the system that's exploiting other people. How does that move from your head, though, to your heart? Because what you're saying is all very good, but if you've been programmed, you know, whether it be in your sexuality or whatever it might be, because there's, I mean, 
the church likes to shame down the board. It's all about fear and shame to control people. Yep. And so you, you, so you're knowing this and, you, and you're listening to people t- say things like smart people like yourself, Brandon, that are, that are speaking like, like this truth is empowering word. But then at the end of the day, you're still programmed yep. to look at yourself a certain way. So like, is there, I mean, maybe it's a baby step sort of a thing, but what would you say to that person that just, that's their struggle is that yeah. they always like they want to believe what you're saying. They know it's true. You have to they, go through reparative therapy for your reparative <laughs> therapy. Seriously enough, right? I mean, there yeah. is the thing we religious trauma is a thing, and it's not been a thing until probably the past ten years. It's really emerged on the psychological scene as like a major thing. But we've all got to go. I mean, what, while I was at Moody going through reparative therapy, halfway through it something i don't even know what series of events led me to start going to this liberal presbyterian church that had a psychologist that was there and she would meet with me once a week for free and so while i was in reparative therapy i also started doing like mainstream good therapy and we started (laughs) doing stuff to help with my ptsd that i had for all sorts of reasons and like i think that's probably what saved me and helped me not feel so traumatized by what happened to me um and I think we, I mean, obviously need to destigmatize mental health, but like this stuff isn't just stuff you should talk about with your friends or with your new progressive church. Like if you have the means, get yourself into therapy and talk through this, because unless you can get the fundamental things that religion kept you from forming, because I think a lot of times Christian religion in its conservative forms keeps us in an infantile state for longer than we should be. And what therapy can help us do is build the in, the internal aspects of maturation that we didn't get. And like or the whole person. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, get reparative therapy for your reparative therapy. Heal yourself. Figure out the things and the false beliefs that are functioning beneath the surface that you might not even be able to name that are both bad theology, but also just fundamentally not true. Um, and I... It's basic, but it's also a hard step for a lot of people to take to actually admit I've been traumatized by my religious past and I actually have real psychological issues rooted in that that I need to work through. So, yeah, yeah. So put in work kind of it's like you said, like you just said, yeah. you have to work through it. It's not something that and everybody heals at different uh, speeds, I guess. And yeah, so don't maybe put the pressure on you that you're going to have to like be fixed immediately. I mean, but. And I know that there's a lot that Seth can speak on this because he has two master's degrees in this area. Uh, but well, what- and I also think there's probably people who are going, I would love to go get therapy, but I don't have the means or the money. Um, if you, ha- if you, if you work somewhere, you may have an employee assistance program uh, where you can get free therapy. Uh, I've taken advantage of that myself. Um, and so I highly recommend it. it. You know, it's certainly a great program. I didn't mean to take away from what Seth was about to say with all of his master's degree knowledge. <laughs> no, but that, that's, that's, that's really good thing just to know that it's something to look into. It's worth looking into um, to put the work into yourself. It's that there's not, it's not going to happen by itself um so yep do the one to plug real quick uh that like i think i was talking about tiktok last time i was on here and tiktok (laughs) continues to blow me away like what i'm seeing happening and this will be like the first time i'm sort of announcing this but like there has been a real community that has formed on my tiktok channel of hundreds and hundreds of people that are coming from christianity and trying to find this new way of being christian and have been deeply hurt by it and 
like this past week, one of the folks that is on my TikTok started a Discord channel, and I didn't even know what that was. And so now we have this channel of people that are just supporting each other virtually. And in January, we're going to start launching um, through my nonprofit, Metanoia, um, a weekly group where for a while we did it and we had like 60 people from around the world coming together face to face on Zoom and talking and processing and thinking about all this. And so this kind of stuff exists out there. Um, I would love it if anybody who's listening and has some trauma comes and joins and spends some time with us, but also just like there are free helpful resources out there about processing your trauma from conservative Christianity. And we might not be psychotherapists, but uh, just having a network of support is super helpful and healing. Definitely. Definitely appreciate that. Man. Check that out. And I'm sure um, with uh, the way you communicate and the personality with yours, you may not, like you said, have be a psychotherapist, but you have uh, many years of experience in the church in your own story. So appreciate you, man. Uh, but there was other questions. You had like four of them there before I cut you off earlier, Seth. And uh, do you want to hit any more of those before, before we move on? Oh, I, I probably think I got all of them. Um, I mean, the main questions was, I mean, the main questions were, um, you know, looking at your strong faith, your internal faith, and then how that impacts shame and guilt. Um, and, and actually, I do want to ask that question because that question was brought up actually in the Facebook live feed, um, which the question is, let me pull it up here. Um, how do you break through the shame? Yeah, he, he just did that one. But did you... What about some? Of, you had another one that you wanted to ask if before we, if not, I'm yeah. sure Chris had something. I think it's okay. I think I got all I needed. Right on. Cool. So TikTok, huh? That's. I mean, good. if I have to hear that "Oh No" song one more time <laughs> on TikTok, I'm going to uh, delete it. <laughs> it's, it. Some of that stuff gets a bit uh, repetitive and old, but get, like. It's mind blowing. I actually did a TikTok today about this. Like, I don't know if you all remember, you were in the church world back then, but in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s, maybe, there was like an internet church movement, like people trying to make church happen online. And like, I feel like 50 people in the world decided to do that and thought that was a good idea. And the rest <laughs> of us kept going to normal church. But now, through this pandemic, I feel like we have re discovered or discovered for the first time how to use technology in a way that like actually feels like we're connecting that's actually meaningful that's actually nourishing um i'm seeing that through i mean over the course of this pandemic i can't tell you how many zooms like this that i've gotten to be on and like this is deep stuff i feel like i know you guys i feel like we're sharing deeply in a way that i don't remember doing before pa uh, the pandemic and tiktok is me getting on and making these 60 second videos, giving my liberal hot takes on theology, like the community I've seen formed on my TikTok is so real and so impactful. Um, and I'm just really, I don't know what to think about it or do with it, but I'm excited that I think in a new way, this interconnectivity of this post-Christian spiritual community um, is going to have so much power in the days ahead. And um, it's it's almost to the point where I don't want to see the pandemic end so that we can keep doing this. But <laughs> I didn't well, say I mean, that. Why, yeah, why should you say? Because you might get your wishes. Uh, yeah. but no, no, no. We got that uh, that vaccine coming out in December, y'all. Uh, what is your TikTok <laughs> handle? It's Rev Brandon Robertson. 
Rev Brandon. When you talk about TikTok, you make me feel old, Brandon, because um, I I just I I'm like I had to learn a whole nother social platform now. I I went all in with Marco Polo. You know that we we wouldn't be where we're at. A lot of stuff you're saying is kind of like how our Marco Polo community was formed. It was very impactful for a few years in my life, and I kind of like am getting burnt out on Marco Polo now. And it's like by the time I learn how to use TikTok, like there's gonna be some other new. platform that my you know the people are gonna come talk to me about this is the new, the new thing i'm like i just can't do it anymore it's just stop. yeah but no, no i think that that's so true and i i feel old on tiktok i mean most of the people are high school kids and i think i might have said this before too but it's so crazy how many conservative 15 year olds that are on tiktok that are willing to come come for me and call me false teacher like it, it makes me want to stay on there and help evangelize the next generation. And so I think all of you should help join me to win them yeah. for Christ. Come on. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that I might, uh, you know, have you give me some tutorials and like walk me through some TikTok because I know that'd be yeah. good for, for at least the podcast. And um, with uh, Seth is also the king of TikTok. <laughs> he sends me TikToks like every day that are awful. <laughs> that's, uh, of that, that's a gay whole guy's story. Yeah. I don't talking create, about gay culture. <laughs> I don't. I don't create TikToks. I just simply watch TikToks. I've yeah. seen some that you created. But um, <laughs> that's true. That's true. You have created some. <laughs> I'm just. I'm very shy, and I'm not attractive on camera, and I don't have anything with. That's to not say. true. I've tried. It doesn't work. I don't. I, if we can pull stuff from interviews, I'm okay with it. But if it's me <laughs> developing content new. That's not a good idea. We should have you do some singing in or maybe a little. Oh, please. No. (laughs) Anyway. No way. uh, I find myself on TikTok getting really angry at, for some reason, the TikTok algorithm knows I'm interested in religion. And so it puts this bullshit up from like uh, the creation museum all the time. And I just want to go in there and like, you know, troll them so hardcore and, you know, but I just, uh, I just swipe, you know, don't show me again or whatever it is. You like hold, you, you long press it and it says, you know. I'm not interested or whatever. And so I've just been trying to do that. Next time that happens, (laughs) you need to push the button on the corner, the little arrow, click stitch, and then record a response. Because the thing is, this, this is what's been so refreshing about TikTok is when I was like 18 to 20, I had people come into my life that I didn't ask to come into my life that blew my mind and like said the thing that was like, you're not supposed to say as a Christian and blew my theological paradigm. And I get to get on TikTok and just say something as simple as Noah's Ark is a myth and watch thousands of young people's minds blow and then like witness them begin the journey of deconstruction. And it's so, it's so satisfying. And it, it you actually like, I can preach in front of my you, congregation you just for blew four years. Seth's mind by saying that too, by the way. <laughs> you know, Brandon. <laughs> You know, I don't I don't agree with the statement that I am about to share. Uh-oh. But there is scripture that says <laughs> in the last days Oh my gosh. There will come false prophets proclaiming a gospel that is outside of Christ's message. Gospel. And that just sounds a little false prophecy to me. I, I, I actually agree with you, but understand from a conservative teenager, right, whose parents are Southern Baptists. Yeah, but once they realize golly, that the, you are the enemy. Once brother. they realize that the flood of Noah is actually the, you know, a tale from other myths as well, they can start to go, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's something to that. 
Well, also, I mean, the very fact that the whole false prophet thing, they thought that was happening in their lifetime. Those false prophets that's come and gone. Jesus was already I mean, supposed Paul to come thought back. He was, Paul thought he was coming. Paul thought Jesus right. was coming back in his lifetime. So clearly they were wrong. No false prophets here. We win. I like what you had to say about Paul in the last uh, in the last no, talk that we I had. Didn't. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about Paul. He kind of just came in there and hijacked everything and uh, probably didn't have any idea who Jesus was. <laughs> yeah, the last time this is, I mean, this is the most compelling, but pro- like if I do PhD work, I'm going to study this as part of it, um, that Paul is the Antichrist, that all the... The literal prop Jesus said, soon someone is going to come proclaiming that they're speaking my gospel and they're going to say, here he is. And there he is. then Paul comes along. This guy has never met Jesus saying, Jesus is coming back imminently. And this is the message he showed me in visions that nobody else heard, but I'm a real apostle. Like there's this whole new theory that's emerging that says Paul is actually the Antichrist that was prophesied by Jesus and Peter and other people. And we all bought into it. Like, that's ninety percent of the New Testament, Brandon. Exactly. There's a reason <laughs> Jesus is the Word That's of God. Point. Jesus. There's a reason there was not not much of a New Testament after Jesus was on Earth. There wasn't any New Testament after Jesus was on Earth because He was the Word of God. He came to set us free from the burden of the law. Come on. And, and so you also mentioned that you appreciated Mark more than any of the other Gospels. Why is that? Well, because we. We know Mark is the most historically accurate, just biblical scholarship, Jesus seminar stuff. Like they spent years looking at the work, the sayings of Jesus. And we all probably know there's this belief among all biblical scholars of all theological stripes that there was a document that people call Q that predated the gospels. That was just QAnon. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's actually unfortunate that all these things are so similar, but, uh, but Q was just a document of the sayings of Jesus, the authentic sayings of Jesus. And scholars believe that all four writers of the Gospels used this document and then wrote out their narratives and inserted these real sayings of Jesus. Mark, if you look at it, it's the shortest Gospel. It's not very narrative-like. It's Jesus said this, did this, moved over, said this, did this, moved People, scholars just say that's the most accurate account and it has the most authentic sayings historically of Christ. Whereas you get to like the Gospel of John, which is 40, 50, 60 years, even 100 years by some scholars after Jesus existed. And it has this very developed Christian theology that isn't there in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, remember, Mark doesn't have a virgin birth. Mark doesn't have a resurrection. Mark is the earliest version of the Jesus story. By the time you get to John, you have Jesus saying, I am God. Um, And that's a big difference from what was happening in the earliest Mm -hmm. days of the Christian movement. Makes you think. Time to make you think. So I'm glad that we've moved on from our TikTok tutorial earlier. (laughs) But um, I I will say one thing about that. You know, if you, you know, maybe help fade gray get a presence on TikTok. Maybe we can help you, you know, get your foot in the door podcasting. Cause you definitely ha- have a lot to say. And I literally love the way that you are able to break down the knowledge that you have, the time you spent like in the Greek and the Hebrew and, and able to like, cause that's stuff that, like I've spent my whole life you know, raising Christianity. And you're saying some stuff to me that I've never heard anybody else kind of like say before. And, it, and it's kind of making sense. You know, I'm like, well, wow, that, you know, the gospel of Mark, is that way and you know 
because we're was speaking to some other people they've kind of hinted to some things but it kind of like connects the dots even more of of why um maybe the virgin birth sounds a lot like you know other stories you, you hear you know in, in in greek mythology and stuff like that so yeah i'm excited i honestly to be able to step outside of and to any church people watching this, don't hate me for saying this, but um, to be able to be outside of the institution of a church allows me to be a little bit more free with the things I'm thinking. Um, I felt as a pastor, I needed to kind of hold it down a little bit, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's so many credible biblical scholars out there ranging from Bart Ehrman to John Dominic Crossan that are saying revolutionary things that are not like crazy conspiracy theories. These are things that are backed up by hundreds of years of good scholarship about who Jesus was. And like one of the newest things around uh, since we're at Christmas time, there's credible evidence that Jesus was obviously not born in Bethlehem, that he was born in Nazareth, but also they such just, a dirty mouth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that the that's going to break, that's going to break some prophecies in the old Testament. Exactly so. though. But cause you don't, why doesn't Mark have a Bethlehem story? Well, because it didn't happen. Mark says, what do they call Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said everyone knew he was born from Joseph and Mary in Nazareth. Um, and by the time you get to Matthew and John, the Jewish writers are trying to make Jesus fit what everyone expected the Messiah to be. Now, I don't think this makes Jesus not the Messiah. And we can talk about that. I mean, on he a whole can be, he, well, hold up, hold up, hold up here. He can be born in Bethlehem and still a child of Nazareth because his Give parents it up, were Seth. from Nazareth, but he was yeah, that, born in Bethlehem. That's the conservative Christian argument, but everything in the Gospel of Mark suggests Jesus is born in Nazareth, and every piece of archaeological evidence we have, there is zero evidence. If you but go the to the wise men them, followed the star and they <laughs> gave them frankincense and, myrrh, frankincense and myrrh. Come on, that's not even in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> what about the little drummer boy? He was oh there. <laughs> oh my gosh! I played the little drummer boy in church growing up. I'm I'm sorry, right. Brandon. You're you're saying some some deep stuff, no. and it really is making sense. And I'm make of oh, you're making jokes, but that's what I'm, I'm just doing. trying to make trouble and get the comments going crazy on here. So <laughs> no, I love it. I love it because I think that that's the problem with Christianity is people have taken it so literally and, and not as prose or not as, uh, you know, an exaggeration or whatever that they've become passionate about something that's not even real or that's not necessarily unreal, but it's not accurate if that makes sense. Yeah. And passion without knowledge always ends up deadly. We see that with every religious group. Um, you have, you know, uh, the crusades, right? You have the Christian crusades. You have, uh, of course, the terrorism currently with uh, radical Islam. Uh, and or, so yeah. they both still exist. Of yeah. course they do. But I'm just saying, that's what causes that kind of radical idea is that they, they look at this text and they're unshakable about what that text says. They, they cannot look past it and say, well, maybe this was exaggerated to fit a narrative or to fit, you know, some sort of, uh, um, uh, a legend of the day. Like, for example, Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, so is Caesar. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus ascended to heaven. So did Caesar. Yep. Right. So like, they need to know these things. They need to yeah. understand. Uh, and, and if they were to be able to exegete or whatever they call it and know what was happening during the time that these things went on, they would be able to see 
Jesus was totally not born of a virgin. It's impossible. Yeah. And the it's thing impossible. Is, but the thing is, our modern mind automatically jumps to, well, then the writers of scripture were sinister. They were trying to lie to us. And it's like, no, actually, the writers of scripture knew that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. They knew that all of his life was a parallel. For instance, the Gospel of Mark parallels uh, Homer's Odyssey uh, almost exactly. I talked about that last time. Like the writers and all the early Christians knew that. And they didn't have a problem with that. Christianity isn't less beautiful because it's it uses mythology. All good religion in the past, including Judaism, and that's how the rabbis have always talked about the stories of the Exodus and the stories of Adam and Eve and the stories of Noah's Ark. It wasn't about them being factual historical events. These are powerful, symbolic, metaphorical stories that tell deep truth. And the Jesus story I think a lot of it is historically verifiably true. And a lot of it was embellished and mythologized, not out of sinister motives, but to take the metaphors that Jesus taught and used and help expand them so that they would be more universal, help them endure longer. And I think we can look at Christianity and say the early Christians were brilliant because they created something that's lasted 2000 years and has dominated. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's I mean you gotta look at even let's just be real and that's what movies do today no one's there's no original story out there I think the Bible even says that you know it's everything's a, a shadow or been redone and so who, who's the same we're not a, we're not angry at C.S. Lewis for writing the Chronicles of Narnia because it's not true no we <laughs> love it because it communicates I am truth. I actually think they suck Okay, well, you well. also like Harry Potter, so you can go get fucked anyway. <laughs> Harry Potter's a much better J. allegory. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings yeah, defeats that, both. No, that first of all, Harry Potter is written by that transphobic woman. Terrible. Ugh. And <laughs> she's not transphobic. <laughs> I'm not opening that can of worms. That's it. Yes. I'm leaving that. <laughs> Oh man, we've we've gone to some good places. I know that um, we had you on to talk about reparative therapy, and but there's there's so much going on, and and, and you're a deep well of conversation. And I, I was kind of joking, kind of not, you know, if, as far as you know, getting you out there. I know you, your platform right now, you're finding a lot of following and a lot of freedom and excitement is on TikTok, but um, you know, I think that you should have presences in, in other places as well. So um. If you ever want to get into podcasting, I know a network that's getting ready to start doing some, some big things and may point you in the right direction. Just um, let me know if we can help. Um, Y'all on TikTok, come on. Yeah, I mean, all about it. And so um, you've kind of inspired me to want to maybe like do what you're saying to, to be able to. I don't know what you said, something about <laughs> stitching and oh, reacting. Yeah. yeah, it's like <laughs> two buttons. And all you do, you hit record, you record a yeah. minute, and it's up there. And li- like, you're going to love it when you start doing it, when you see the crazy people come after you, first of all, and then all of the people be like, tell me more. Where can I learn more? I want to go deeper. It's so satisfying. So good. I just have a hard time being kind to people that are stupid. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's the right thing for me to do, to be honest. Well, the truth is, I mean, if you want noble motives, maybe not. But I mean, you'll get lots of followers by being unkind <laughs> to the Creation Museum. That'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it might, yeah, it might feel better after the end of it. At the end of the day, Chris, we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, so it's been a lot of fun. I don't know if you have any more thoughts. I know you've got some big stuff going on uh, as you're moving to DC, um, and it, maybe down the road we'll have you back on once you can like, talk some more about that. When he's running for president. 
2024, baby. Be in four years. <laughs> but yeah, any other any other thoughts? Anything else that you want to plug? Any directions um, the listeners can maybe uh, other than TikTok? Just just TikTok. What else is there? Why would you want anything else? But um, yeah, I mean, if you want to follow any, my website has everything, brandonrobertson.com. But otherwise, uh, for the rest of the year, I'm TikToking and I'll have a new book coming out and about that then. It's a secret till then. So. Awesome. Very cool. Exciting. Well, thanks, Brandon. And enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, yeah. we'll talk to you soon. So good to see all you. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks, listeners. Peace. <laughs>